You're listening to episode 28 of the Becoming Aligned podcast. Welcome to Becoming Aligned, where we'll step away from the busyness of our days to explore what it looks and feels like to create meaningful lives that align with our personal values. My guests have found their own unique way to navigate through the distractions, the pressures, and the expectations of everyday life. And in the process, they have discovered the freedom to be truly themselves, to tune into their own heart, and to honor their own unique voice. I'll explore what motivates them, what challenges them, and what strategies help them work towards their goal in a way that nourishes their mind and body. I believe everyone has a story to share, and that we become a stronger community when we're able to listen and learn from those around us. I'm your host, Maureen Ryan, the founder of Ryan Wellness, I'm a Chicago-based self-discovery mentor and Pilates instructor. I hope these conversations will serve as inspiration and as a reminder that it's not about perfection, but the process of becoming aligned. In this episode, I talk to Amelia Ruby. She's a writer, podcaster, and a PhD candidate in philosophy with an emphasis in art and feminist theory. I just love this conversation and want to soak in as much of Amelia's knowledge as possible. While she's an academic, she has this beautiful way of using language to distill and explain topics that can be so challenging for many of us to discuss. We talk about the value or really the necessity of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable for those of us with white privilege, and she shares how she views her role in this process in terms of the work she does. We also discuss her progress or process of becoming aligned as a journey of unlearning, learning, integrating with self-care, and taking action. So many thoughtful, insightful moments in this episode. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Amelia. Thank you so much for being on the Becoming Aligned podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, me too. Yay. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We met just a few weeks ago for the first time at an event hosted by The Wing in Chicago, where we had a chance to, mm-hmm. I had a chance to meet you and learn about your fantastic podcast called 50 Feminist States, which is such a cool concept. And I, I would love to learn more about your podcast and the inspiration behind it. But I'd also really love to get to know more about you as a person and how you came to do the work that you do, because you seem to be involved in a number of things that that really seem to reflect your values. And I know that's not always easy for a lot of us to do, to make those kind of intentional choices to align our values to our, our work and what we practice in our lives. So I'd, I'd love to kind of dive into that a little bit throughout the course of our conversation today. So hopefully you're up for that. Yeah, definitely. All right, cool. So could you start start us off with like a major question, like a big question, <laughs> but could you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. Uh, again, thanks so much for having me. I am super pumped to be on the Becoming Aligned podcast Yay. today. Um, so my name's Amelia Fruby. I am a writer, podcaster, and PhD candidate right now. Um, I have kind of a plethora of jobs and projects that I work yeah. on at any given time. Um, I grew up in North Carolina in a relatively small um town, small county, and then I went to college there. Moved to Chicago almost six years ago now to start grad school, so I've been here for quite a while, um, and that's been like a really beautiful and wonderful adventure. 
Um, I am getting my PhD in philosophy with an emphasis on philosophy of art and uh, feminist theory. But that really is just kind of one facet of the things that I do. Um, So, you know, I have a lot of academic knowledge, but really what I've always kind of strived to do is make that knowledge more approachable Mm. through through education, through teaching, through writing, through podcasting. Um, So in the fall of 2017, I self-published a book called 50 Feminist Mantras, and that was really one of the first ways that I kind of started sharing um, these ideas, a lot of like really theoretical ideas I had around feminism and then trying to distill them into like, what is a mantra that really kind of shares you know, this, this point or this knowledge, this argument even, mm-hmm. um, and distills it down to like a word or a few words and I can share with people that might motivate them to reflect on some kind of feminist theme throughout their week. I mean, for me, mm. kind of targeted at, um, at women particularly, also trans and gender nonconforming and non-binary folks, like to help us seek liberation because I still think mm. that is super important. Um, and that book... I mean, it did well, at least as well as I wanted it to. And yeah. I was able to have even more conversations with lots of amazing people about feminism and um, kind of people who taught me a lot, people who I was able to educate. And then at a certain point, that kind of led me to this idea of creating 50 Feminist States, which is a listener-funded podcast where I cool. travel across the U.S. to interview feminist activists and artists. And I make state-specific episodes about a particular uh, gendered issue in that state and how these activists or artists there are really, um, like, fighting against kind of a patriarchal, white supremacist, capitalist society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that podcast has been so fulfilling. Um, I've been to 16 states so far. Awesome. I've raised over $13,000 to fund um, wow. various, like, travels and equipment needs. Um so, yeah, that's been a really wonderful adventure. I'm about to leave again to go on another trip to do more interviews for that. So That's amazing. some of my major things, yeah. Yeah, and I know you've even got more, you know, a variety of other things that seem to inspire you. But I love to just, like, pause here for a minute because mm-hmm. how cool is that, that you started off with this book? And I love, love, love the idea of, you know, distilling it down, making it approachable because – how else can we get as many people on board if we can't, like, if these are just big ideas and they might be fun to talk about, you know, abstractly, but just to, like, make it something that we can all kind of dive into together and start to understand. And I love that so much. And then to make that, it's just like, it just seems like it floats. So you had the book and then were you planning, did you see all of this in your future when you started that book, like that it would just lead to the podcast and lead to this other experience? No, not yeah. at all. <laughs> um, I wish I could say that, like, I was that kind of planner and knew yeah. what I was doing. Um, but, no, I think really, I mean, it even goes back a little farther than the book. Mm-hmm. So I, um, in the fall of 2016, I started writing feminist mantras and just putting them on Instagram. Okay. I think I my first one was, like, on Halloween in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that because I actually... I did it because I was kind of frustrated with a lot of, and it wasn't, it changed a lot. So what happened in the beginning is I was frustrated with a lot of people I saw supporting Hillary Clinton, who Mm -hmm. I voted for and also supported through that election. But Mm -hmm. um, 
I was frustrated with the things they were calling feminists and the ways that I felt like they were really um, supporting things that I thought were not for the liberation of all people in the name of feminism. So yeah. I started these mantras to try to like share some of my knowledge about feminism, like in a, in like an opening and welcoming way with people mm-hmm. that I thought maybe um, didn't quite know as much or were talking about it a lot, but could use some of the n- different language and concepts and resources. And of course I did that for like a month and then Trump got elected. Uh, yep. And then all of a sudden, like these mantras became this like solve, it became this necessary medicine. And I was writing them for myself and for my community and kind of, bringing people together. That's really what I was trying to do is like make a space where we could all kind of tap in on Mondays and start our week like feeling okay because every week was such a trial and there were so many tribulations. I mean, I still feel that way in many ways. Absolutely. So the project really shifted and then I wrote those mantras every Monday for about a year and then eventually compiled them in the book. But at that point, like when I started that, you know, there was no book in mind. There was Mm -hmm. no podcast. Um, it was not a plan. It was just kind of me following, um, like creating what I felt I needed and then trying to share it with other people. Yeah. Well, and I think that's so cool because it's like just by starting something and just seeing what, you know, what it allows you to see and like new opportunities or new kind of pathways to kind of follow. And I'd actually like to take it back even further because I'm listening to you talk about this and this interest in feminism and, um, you obviously are well versed and have like a like kind of like deep roots in this now. But I'm just wondering, like you grew up in a small town, and I know you came to Chicago. And I'm just wondering what your story was, how you got to this point. Was this something that yeah. you always kind of like? You know, was it? I mean, I don't picture too many young kids like I want to study philosophy. You know, but like, how did that? <laughs> <laughs> how did you develop this interest and? You know, do you would you be able to pinpoint different things in your life that might have kind of helped spur spur your interest? Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for asking because I think this story is also a lot of what motivated me to start the podcast. Mm. Um, so I grew up, as I mentioned, like in a pretty small town in North Carolina, a really generally conservative area in a yeah. fairly like conservative family, um, very incredibly supportive family, but very conservative family. Um, and I was always an incredibly precocious child, mm-hmm. <laughs> like in the good in the positive and negative connotations <laughs> of that word. Um, I was always like, very intelligent, a little, always a little bit ahead of my class and my peers, but yeah. also a little bit like trying to show up the teacher and a little <laughs> bossy and a little like <laughs> uh, a little full of myself at times, I think. Um, growing up, and I I struggled with that a lot. I um, mm. never really felt like I fit in. I definitely had this kind of mentality of like needing to leave there, not liking being there, Mm. um, feeling like it was really small, feeling really out of place, um, feeling really constrained Mm. by the um, opportunities that seemed to be presented to me and like what I should do with my life. Um, And I went to actually like a public boarding school in North Carolina for my junior and senior year of high school. And, um, kind of I don't know how to describe it what metaphor I want to use but like it was like things opened up a little bit I saw more 
ways of being in the world. Got I learned it. what a vegan was. I learned what a Quaker was. Like, <laughs> yeah. all these things that I had no clue existed in the world. Yep, yep, um, yep. Stuff I had to learn about because it just wasn't a part of my, like, I, it just wasn't a part of the small town south. Yeah. Um, and I didn't even grow up in the smallest town south. So, like, I grew up in a county of maybe, um, at the time, 30-some thousand people. Like, okay. I had friends who grew up in towns of 800 people. So totally. I really wasn't even in – I wasn't in a rural area. I was just in a small area. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so I went to that high school, saw a little bit more of the world, and I ended up going to a women's college in Raleigh, mm. North Carolina. And, like, I'm very appreciative of my education there, but also very aware of, like, while I was there – um, the women and gender studies department, which was only around for a couple of years, was shut down while I was there. Um, there was no real like feminist education at the heart of like the root of that women's college experience. Did you know that I want to study, you know, women and gender studies? Was that something that you were ready to dive into at that point? It was not on my radar. Okay. All right. So, cool. yeah. So I really became interested in philosophy. That school, my school did not have a philosophy major, but I had a really great professor who st- who taught religion and ethics Got and it. I studied under him and um, just had this real enjoyment of theory and this mm-hmm. real aptitude for writing and kind of that led me to apply to grad school. And then I ended up in Chicago, um, which was just like a mind blowing place. It was so big. It was yeah. so, uh, so liberal, so urban, so all many of these things that, um, I don't know, first in a certain way I always thought I was, but started yeah. to realize like the real differences between where I had grown up, where I gone to college and then where I you know, moved and where I'm living now. So Yeah. I think in graduate school is really when I started to learn about feminism. I did take courses in the women and gender studies department. I have a certificate in women and gender studies and I met some really amazing radical activists feminist activists here who are doing such cool work and I learned a lot from them Mm. um and actually some of them are people who like I've now featured on my podcast some of them are students of mine who I've learned from and have now been on the 50 feminist states podcast so particularly like the the New York and Pennsylvania episodes from last season are people that I know from Chicago and like wanted to interview where they are like living and doing work now to learn more from them because they were so informative um, in developing my politics. So I really like, I always feel like I came to social justice later than a lot of my peers. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, like that later for me is still uh, my early to mid 20s. So it's right. not that late. But right. um, being here, you know, I mean, it, it still feels late sometimes. Often I'm around people where I'm like, wow, you had super liberal parents, you were taught, I like, had a super progressive upbringing. And I'm just huh just now like reading and and figuring things out and I think that's part of what really yeah. makes me want to share a lot of that knowledge because I feel like I've been on the other side of never knowing these things and I've been on the other side of it feeling incredibly um ostracizing and feeling very unsure of how to unlearn what I need to unlearn yeah and so part of the work I'm doing now is really trying to help other people do that by making sense of how I did it Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Because I mean, I grew up in Chicago, like on the very northwest side of Chicago, which is a bit more of it's one of the more conservative areas, actually, in the city. Mm -hmm. And I remember going, I remember going to, you know, way to school. And I was, I was going to Indiana University. So it wasn't like it was some, you know, super uh, liberal area, but it was, 
that was a wake up call for me too, just in terms of meeting different types of people and being open to experiences. So I, I just, it makes so much sense for me to like hear you talk about this 50 feminist states and the travel, like just the ability to travel and, and go to different places. It just opens your eyes to different ways of thinking and being and that, I don't know. I, I love I, I love the concept. Is that part of it for you is like just to see with like different places and how they think and believe and feel and how the, they might be different a little bit from each other? Yeah, most certainly. Okay. Like you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Cool. I mean, I think that um, I had this like deep sense from the differences that I've experienced between North Carolina and um, particularly Chicago and Illinois. Mm. And I was just like, this is has to be true all over the country there are Mm -hmm. such different struggles that people face and like such different like feminist fights that activists are fighting and feminist experiences that artists are portraying because as we've seen in the past few months state Mm -hmm. laws are so different yeah and one state can you know make something illegal or try to make something illegal and then all of a sudden everyone from the surrounding states have to build coalitions to like get resources to people and do all these things so i think that also like it comes, it's like cultural differences, but it's also this because we have such a state-based system mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, for many laws, it really is a matter of like what access people have and what liberation they, they need and that they're struggling for. And that looks a little bit different everywhere. So for the podcast, I really wanted to like dig into those differences in a really mm-hmm. nuanced way because I'm also very frustrated by a lot of the narratives um, that came out of the 2016 ele- election that just like slammed rural America mm. and made rural America almost this like mm-hmm. derogatory phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think while I feel no need to, you know, overemphasize with racists or sexists or misogynists or homophobic people or mm-hmm. transphobic people, I do feel like there's so many stories to tell in these spaces. And I've been to all of these purportedly red states and mm-hmm. I've found some of the most progressive people I've ever met there. <laughs> right. And I want to make sure that people are learning that too. Yeah, I think that's so important to to hear because it's true. We just we have this narrative where like the northern states are, you know, so much more progressive, but a lot of times we're just better at hiding <laughs> um, and disguising, <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, yeah. some of these deep seated beliefs and things there was this like amazing Mm -hmm. podcast I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it called it's um seeing white it's on a podcast called uh seen on radio I believe it's the name of it It oh yeah it was yeah oh I just loved it so much because I think they talked about that quite a bit in there and it's like yeah so I it's just like opening our eyes to really what's going on and we don't know and we we get trapped I think in these uh, like these broad, you know, brush strokes of how we paint the different parts of the country. And um, yeah, I love that you're doing something like this that just kind of opens our eyes to the different states and the different areas um, to see to see it more clearly. But the other thing I really love that you're talking about is that you're you're doing it in a very welcoming way um, because I'm thinking to myself, like, I'll, you know, as someone who's um, pretty liberal and grew up in a more conservative area. A lot of the people I went to, you know, grade school and high school with, you know, they, I, I'm sure would, you know, consider themselves pretty conservative. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting, like, I'm not always super 
open with my thoughts and ideas with, with certain types of people because I don't want to cause arguments. But at the same time, it's like this idea of speaking up for what you believe in and sharing information. And there's a way of doing it, I think, that can be really effective. And I think that's kind of the path that it sounds like you're on. And was that was that a hard thing for you to do at first? Or was that, yeah, describe that process to me, if you can. Definitely also struggled, like particularly um, in the past few years, about like how to have more direct conversations with people mm-hmm. and how to, um, for a while, it was like, um, I became, I think, kind of combative with mm-hmm. some of my fr- friends and family members and really felt like I had this obligation to um, be much more vocal about my own views and kind of put in their face that I disagree yeah. with them. Mm-hmm. And I I think that's important. I really think that like a politics of discomfort for mm-hmm. privileged people is really important. Yep. So that's always like, a, that's always there for me. I think at the end of the day, um, they can't, it's not all going to be comfortable. Right. So I'm, I'm very open to that. And I've put myself in extremely uncomfortable positions mm-hmm. and, and ostracized myself and picked fights and yelled at people. Mm-hmm. And so I'll just say that too. Like I've definitely done that. Now, do I, I never do that on the internet because I don't think it's productive. Like yes. I don't do that on Facebook. I do that like sitting down with people or over the phone or like whatever the most face-to-face way I can get with mm-hmm. them is. Um but I do think that's important. So mm-hmm. when I say that I really work to be to be welcoming, I think it's not at the expense of those hard conversations. Got it. That that said, um, I think that you have to be you have to get to a certain point in a relationship with someone before you can have one of those conversations mm-hmm. where they will be open to listening to you. So um, I don't think the first thing you can do is come at somebody about something because it will make them, I think, defensive. feel defensive yeah. or shut down. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are things that um, responses that many of us have. Um, so part of what I'm trying to do in my work is on a, a lot of times just kind of set the stage through like education and um, intention mm-hmm. that then would allow for some harder conversations about issues that I think are really contentious or feel really personal to people. Mm-hmm. Um I also think that one of the things I've learned in a number of my conversations with um, the activists I've talked to is like, I love talking to them because they are people on the ground mm-hmm. um, fighting for the rights of the most marginalized people, often including themselves mm-hmm. and their own identities. Um, and that work is so important. And I am so happy to spotlight and share that work. Yeah. Um, And then a role, one of the roles I see for myself is being able to take that work and kind of explain and share it with an audience who, frankly, is never, never going to be there, isn't there on the ground with them. They never be there on the ground with them. Um, And I think it's important to do that. I definitely, like, had this really interesting experience teaching, um, like, a small workshop or teaching on intersectionality and intersectional feminism. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Women's Day 2017, probably, um, maybe 2018. I think it was Women's Day 2017. Um, and uh, the room was like a largely a room full of like, I think, well-meaning white women mm-hmm. um, who are a little bit older than me. And I was kind of teaching to that. And then one of my good friends came who is an activist and is very radical and progressive. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of it, I got some questions and kind of um, – 
that friend and I were able to have a conversation after where they were like, you know, I don't, I don't want to engage with these sorts of questions you're answering because they're just misguided and Mm -hmm. problematic. Like even the way the questions are asked is problematic. And, Mm -hmm. and I hear her when she says that, I hear them when they say that, like, I, um, I feel that too. And I think that the role I see is like, it's not their responsibility to answer those questions. Like I can jump in and slowly work on like unpacking why the question is problematic and then answering it in a way that I think does better service to the question asker and like the issues at hand. But, Mm -hmm. and some of that comes from the fact that I've been teaching college classes for like three or four years now. So I have a lot of like practice um, hearing a question and figuring out what the better question is in it. Yeah, that's Um, great. So I think that's how I try to be welcoming in a way that's going to bring people into hard conversations. And I think the goal is always to get to those harder conversations mm-hmm. to get uncomfortable right. but I think that you ha- like there's a certain amount of bringing people in that has to happen first yeah and I totally agree like the people who are in you know more marginalized that's definitely not their job to be having I, I get that piece not having those conversations and like that like others can do that work or or the people who have the questions yeah. like my you know you know talking to friends who are African-American like um one in particular stands out. It's like, okay, I'll have the conversation with that person once they've read these books or, you know, once they've kind of done yeah. some work for themselves and then I'll have some of those conversations. But I don't want to be, you know, taking the weight of that journey myself. And I, I totally get that because there's already so much weight that the that, that those people are taking in many ways. So um, as white people, I think it's often, I don't know, our, our responsibility, I guess, in many ways to to do the work <laughs> to help start to yeah. understand. Um, and for those of us who have experiences that have opened us up in many ways to try to share that with others. And um, I don't know, hopefully what I'm saying is making sense, but that's, that's you yeah. know, something I've been, you know, kind of trying to work on and trying to speak up more for um, as I've been doing my own work to, to, yeah, to grow as a person. So I, I find it really interesting because I'm, I'm picturing you teaching college classes and that's interesting what you said about, you know, finding the question within the question and um, are, are the students that you're working with, are they ones that are already, you know, they're signing up because they're active in the course? I, I'm actually kind of flashing back to, I was in a, a counseling program. I was uh, getting my school counseling degree and there was a multicultural um, counseling course that we all took and it was actually really interesting in a respect that it was um, people really resisted the information like I think they wanted to hear it mm-hmm. but the way it was brought brought to us was um, the people got their defenses up and so I, I'm just thinking um, to myself do you ever deal with that in your in your classwork and what are some strategies that you use that help people become that, you know, you can have those those tough and difficult conversations because that's the point to get there so we can grow as people and to be able to be present in, the, in that in that way. Yeah. Um, so I definitely relate to that experience. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I pretty vividly remember the first year I went to that boarding school I mentioned our like summer mandatory reading was why are all the black kids sitting together mm-hmm. in the cafeteria? Yeah. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Yes. So. Um, we read that book and I remember feeling, I mean, you know, coming mm-hmm. out of this like small town conservative yeah. space that I grew up in, I remember feeling defensive reading that and just mm-hmm. like, 
not knowing what to make of it. Um, and then I definitely see those reactions in my students. I have yeah. many times. Um, for me, and this kind of goes back to what I was just saying about my experience in that workshop or teaching too, and and the role I see that I play in, in all of these instances is um, the best thing I feel like I can do in those situations is present marginalized folks, their, their accounts of their lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And the work I do is get my students ready to listen to them. So Ooh. it's never about what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and like in that internet intersectional feminist workshop, like it's not about me, period. The mm-hmm. end. Like it's not about me at all. It's not about what I'm saying. It's about how can I present some information so that all of us here are ready to read Audre Lorde and get what she's uh, saying. Or like in my classes, how can I present enough information that by the end of the quarter, everybody there is reading Janet Mock mm-hmm. and is ready to understand this experience of a you know, black trans woman of color who was a survival sex worker. Like, what? Do, what's the work that I have to do to get my students um, so they can actually listen yeah. to those lived experiences? And that's how I'm thinking of it. And that's why, you know, I'm trying to center those accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, and the work I'm doing is always just like preparatory and contextualizing um, so that when, you know, when we do go read them, we get the most out of them. We really understand not only like the singularity of that person's experience, but also the social context and constructs around that person's experience. Um, and we understand the oppression that results in the, that person's lived experience in some ways and what they're fighting against when they succeed or when they struggle. Um, so that that's really how I see the work that I'm doing. And that's I think cool. that, the sign for me is like, if I've done my work as an instructor well enough, then when we get to those lived experiences, mm. um, people are not defensive. Or it's really like when we work back out of those lived experiences into the theory and into like the social constructs again, mm-hmm. um, they're not defensive and they, they're able to see like, okay, here's mm. how this showed up in these, you know, examples that we looked at and here's why that's important. And here, if they're a person... Um, of privilege, they're like, here's how, you know, I'm implicated in that. Or if they're a person who shares in that marginalization, they're like, this is how I can make sense of some of the things yeah. that have happened to me um, after hearing this. So that's what I'm working with. Does that yeah. mean that like every student leaves my class without being defensive? <laughs> no, right. not at all. Right. Like you can't, some people are very entrenched in their beliefs and, yeah. and that's, you know, I do as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, it's, it's you can only do so much, right? But that's I love that approach. Mm-hmm. That's really cool to hear you like articulate that. Um, and like, I imagine like you've had some really like some students and people who've had like some really cool like aha moments or, you know, moments for themselves. What do you think the what do you think the biggest kind of like waking awakening that you see within the people that you work with or your students or even yourself ha- has been? It's a big question, kind of, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, to people who listen to the podcast, from people who listen to the podcast all the time, is I learned so much. Mm. And to me, that is a big success. I mean, I yeah. think at the end of the day, the podcast is educating people on things that are happening around the country and things that they, in my opinion, should know and care about. Mm-hmm. Um 
I think that, um, I guess, may, and this isn't really like in terms of like the awakenings my students have or whatnot. I'm not so much sure, but I think yeah. the two things that I I hope people take away from from all of my work is that all of our lives are implicated in everyone else's lives Mm -hmm. and the small decisions that we make impact others Mm -hmm. and that we should be aware of those decisions and the impact they have and we should make more conscious choices surrounding them. Mm -hmm. So I think that like educating about learning learning about yourself, learning about your ancestry, learning about the social context you live in, learning about how, you know, the decisions you make impact the environment, impact other laborers, impact the exploitation of human beings, impact your neighbors, like impact everyone, impact like animal life and plant life and the ecosystem you're in. I think that, um, that that's one, the one, the first thing I want people to take away from all my work, whether it be my classes, whether it be, the podcast, whether it be my book. Yeah. Um, and the, the second thing, I want them to take that away, but then I want them to recognize that they can mm. make changes in that world yeah. and that they can organize and that they can have an impact because something I see among my peers and among my students so often is like we do that education, whether mm-hmm. it's self-education, whether it's in school, whether it's like reading and listening to podcasts and then we just feel kind of like distraught and like nothing can be done Uh and then because of that just like don't do anything to change Mm -hmm. um and like that response is only available to people of privilege Privilege, to begin with yep um and so I want people to realize that like when you see injustice or when you experience injustice you can fight back Mm-hmm. Um, I did this great exercise with my students, I think like two terms ago where we like read this Audre Lorde essay and it wasn't very long. And then we just spent 90 minutes of class where I was like, okay, break down into groups, think about a problem you have here on campus and mm-hmm. come up with 10 ways that you could fix it, Love it. Um, or that you could resolve it. And you know, nobody ever does that in class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like no, nobody right. ever sits there. Um, and like the students had really concrete things and I tried to empower them to say like, this is changeable. Like one of them wanted the downtown library to be open an hour earlier. And I was like, you could totally make that happen. Like that's something you have the power to do. They didn't have like, you know, these lofty impossible ideas. They wanted super concrete things. They wanted a textbook for this other class to cost less. Uh Um, and I was like, you can do this. Like you just have to talk to other people, create community and then demand change. Um, and I don't mean to oversimplify yeah, that. That yeah. can be really hard. Right. But at the same time, it's like, that's what all of us need to be doing more of. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. We need to stop falling back into our privilege, <sighs> accepting things the way they are because things are good enough mm-hmm. for us, for those of us that have privilege. Mm-hmm. And we just need to like, start, I don't know, like for lack of a better phrase, just like, start changing shit. Yeah. <laughs> we can do that. Yeah. Um, that, that's what I want people to take away from my work. That's huge. That's huge. Because it's like, it's great to like know and un- exactly what you said. It's great to know and understand things and to talk about things. But then, 
Yeah, I just had a conversation with my boyfriend last night and we were just talking and I was feeling down like this is going to air like later. But it was, you know, the situation with, you know, Trump's comments about center, you know, center back and things like that. And it just had me in a bit of a funk Mm -hmm. and I was sharing that. And, you know, it's because I'm a person of privilege and he's actually not. So, you know, he heard me and respected my feelings, but he's like, you know, we're going to be doing stuff and we're always going to be working. We've always been working, especially as someone who is not a privilege. And uh, it's uh, it was it was yeah, it was like I needed that reminder because it's like, okay, you can feel those feelings. But now what are you going to do with those feelings? (laughs) And um, making those steps is so, so important. I especially especially feel like right now in the age we're in. And um, I love what you said about creating community. And I would like to hear you talk a little bit about, if you wouldn't mind, sharing a little bit about how you for yourself have created a sense of community. Because you've been in Chicago for, what, six years, you said? And it seems Mm -hmm. that you have a pretty firm sense of community for yourself or that you've been you figured out how to navigate that a little bit. Could you describe how, how you, um, how you form community for yourself? Yeah, gladly. Um, as someone who moved here and didn't know anybody or like had, you know, one or two vague acquaintances, but no friends. Mm-hmm. Um, if anyone is listening is in that position, uh, I feel you. It is really <laughs> hard. Yeah. And so, and also I will say that some of the things I might say next might sound like platitudes that are not comforting when you're in that. <laughs> I don't know anybody. Everything is hard position. They were said to me and I scoffed at people, but of course, <laughs> like most platitudes, they're kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So I moved here. I didn't know anybody. I was like deeply, deeply lonely, which I think is something mm. that we don't talk enough yeah. about as a society. Um, and frankly, I cycled through maybe two or three friend groups, like not just mm. friends, but like complete groups. friend groups before yeah. I actually, um, I would say within the past two years, kind of landed into a deeper sense of self that mm. attracted a community that is very aligned with my values and dreams for the oh, world. Love it. Um, and that took time and it was really painful. I won't lie. Like going through like the hard work to create groups of friends and then their dissolution is really challenging. And that's also something I think we don't talk enough about is like those processes and what it means to like let go of people, to let go of parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I think that's a big part of community and it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think like community you know, it involves conflict. It's all like we talk, I mean, community yeah. is wonderful. It is like the, the seed of my, my being. I love people and I love loving people. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, there's not a lot of conflict and struggle and challenge in that. Um, so the community I have now, like I kind of found them in a number, I'm trying to even think like, yeah, I found them on Instagram. I found them by taking internships to do work with people oh. that I admired um, cool. you know, I kind of got really lucky at a certain point and just put myself out there enough times that, um, a couple key people really responded and opened up to me and let me into these larger communities they were a part of. And I was mm. able to kind of find my niche within them. Um, and that's challenging for yeah. sure. Um, and kind of, it was like, I kind of, I got into those communities and I met a few people and then from meeting those people, I was able to get the attention of a few other people and like, then they open up and then Mm. now I found myself in a few like groups of friends, peers and colleagues that I, I really admire, but it, 
at the end of the day, I could really, I can literally go back to like one internship and one panel that I went to huh. where I met a few key people that opened up the city to me in an entirely new way. And oh. it is impossible to know in advance, like which event and which job <laughs> is going to do that for you. Yeah. So I also went to like dozens of panels where I, I like met no one. <laughs> and yeah. um, so creating community took time and it took openness. Um, and now it just takes a real commitment to showing up for those people, to caring for them, to mm. paying attention to their lives and to letting them into my life. Mm. Um, none of that's magic. It's just work. It's not. And yeah. joy. Yeah. Oh, I love that work and joy. That's, that's good. <laughs> I, and I do. I think it gets harder as we get older. So I love your honesty and like just, come. you know, you're just. Because some people might not like share like the, you know, the deeply lonely moments that you experience as you're, you know, coming to a new city or you're, I think for even people who live in the city often like experiencing that. And we just don't, we don't talk about that that often. And yeah, go, going to all these panels, like when you were going and you weren't like necessarily meeting new people, like how did you kind of get yourself back out there for the next panel or for the next event? Like what kind of kept you going? Yeah. Like, that can be hard. Like, I feel like, yeah, I'll just, and I'm a homebody yeah. or an introvert. So I can imagine the temptation just to stay at home <laughs> instead sometimes. But how'd you keep yourself going? Yeah. Uh, well, very luckily, I'm an extrovert. Ah, so at good. the end of the day, my myself will always push me back out there. That's I also, um, I also have a pretty, I think like coming out of, like I said before, like having always been a precocious child like mm. I have a pretty strong ego and I there are problems with having a strong ego but one <laughs> thing it has done is that through a whole lot of failure and rejection it has like it still buoys me yeah so I keep going That's even awesome. when things get really really hard I don't um succumb to the kinds of like self self-doubt that yeah. I know are paralyzing when I have to experience them and have many people in my life who are paralyzed by them and so I, I see that and I um I sympathize with that a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that the fact that I've been able to be so resilient is, is in some ways just the results like my personality um, and refusing to be re just refusing to accept failure mm. or rejection in Love certain it. instances and just like pushing past them and keeping going. So um, for me, I love, mantras Ooh, <laughs> as you might yep. have noticed from my book yep. like I'm a huge fan of a mantra and like whatever you need to say to yourself to like stay out there and stay open to people um no particular one is coming to mind right now but I do have a book of 50 of them so <laughs> probably one in there um but I think like I think a mantra can be really great to hold on to and I always yeah. try to pick like a word or a phrase for every year or season that's really going to guide me through. So maybe in a period when you're trying to expand in that way, you really pick something that's going to keep you pushing, like pushing past that fear, past that like feeling of like, Oh, well I went to that panel and like nothing happened yeah. and it was fine. Um, I also think this may sound kind of counterintuitive, but you know, I, I think there's a way where you can be, you know, really pick the things that you go to, especially if you're somebody who is introverted and has limited energy for those things, mm -hmm. you know, really being clear about what you're deciding to go to and being clear with yourself about, okay, I'm going to go to this thing and I'm going to talk to three people. I yeah. don't know. Um, yeah. And I think that works a lot better than 
you know, going to three things and talking to nobody because you were so tired because, you know, you had three things on your schedule that week or that month. Yeah. Um, so sometimes, you know, I'll have something on my calendar for months in advance. And like, I know that that's the big thing that I'm doing. Yeah. And sometimes something will sound great. And I don't go because I know that I don't have the energy to speak to a single human there. So there's no reason for me to, um, to show up to make community. Maybe I still show up to learn something. Um, and I sit in my corner and it's fine. I leave early, (laughs) which I do frequently. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but I think just being really, um, open with yourself uh, or like honest and direct Mm -hmm. with yourself about what you want to get out of different opportunities and, and what you can expect of yourself when you're there. Um, I think that's a good way to kind of keep going out there and keep putting yourself out there um, over time. And I would also say like for introverts, um, not that you asked me explicitly, but I feel like, (laughs) um, you know, I use Instagram as a real tool for this. So like, you know, I will write things that I think are very open and vulnerable with my community and put them on Instagram and I get really great responses from people. And that's a way that I can kind of put myself out there um, while managing my energy and like, you know, how often, and this gets really tricky. Like sometimes you have to have self-control to not go check it every 30 seconds or feel right. like crap if nobody responds the right. first day or whatever. There's no likes right um, away. Yeah. Yeah. But over time, it has become a way where I've built community without actually having to like, you know, at a certain point you end up going to meet somebody, but yeah. it's where somebody can get to know you and you're still kind of in um, a little bit, I don't know, your home or wherever yeah, you're posting your from on yeah. your phone. That's so interesting. Okay, because you're talking about um, kind of being vulnerable or like um, sharing things about yourself. And then I, I'm kind of still stuck on this thing that you mentioned earlier um, where when you're meeting, like when you're cycling through these different friend groups, um, that you have this evolving sense of self. There was that, if I'm remembering mm-hmm. what you said there, like, and that's kind of what led you to these different different groups, like this different maybe um, – growth within yourself was that something that was that you were occurring and would you be able to explain what that was all about for us and like what you were discovering yeah 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 thank you for that question because I don't think I've quite had to articulate this for myself before so we'll see yeah. what uh, what comes out when Perfect. I try to answer the question um I mean I think for me there have always been like you know I've, there are always things that I've loved or like personality traits that I have um that carry through all of those, um, that like evolution of myself. I Mm -hmm. think for me, there's been a really deep, like political and ethical awakening over Mm. the past five years. Um, so, you know, I've always loved writing. I've always loved making zines and I love, you know, taking photos and, and things that stay. I'm like, I've always been extroverted. I always love talking to my friends. I always love making food with them. Like those things have been consistent across all of my friend groups. Like, those are, you know, core parts of who I am. Um, but over time, like my values have really shifted to mm. be um, much more focused on feminism. You know, I really, as I said before, like I see all of these different aspects of my life as implicated in other people's lives. So I'm making big decisions around um, where I live, trying mm. to think about gentrification and what matters and making yeah. big decisions around, um, you know, how I get around the city and like mm. what modes of transport makes the most sense I'm making big decisions around like where I buy from like I don't buy anything from Amazon anymore and that's important to me and like it's not that I'm not friends with people who buy things from Amazon but if you are my friend you know why I don't shop at Amazon (laughs) and like 
that and you're open to that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so like those sorts of parts of my life have become more and more important in those decisions have become more and more conscious. And, yeah. you know, my friend groups have shifted, you know, kind of people who also want to interrogate those things about their lives or at least like hear me talk about them. Yeah. And there are some people who like, that's not where they're at. Yep. And, um, and it's really changed. And I, I think this is, I don't think this is unique to me. I, I'm hearing and seeing a lot of people talk about the ways that they're, um, networks have shifted Mm -hmm. over the past um two years i don't i don't think everything goes back to trump's election but i do see that as like a watershed moment for a lot of people and i think a lot of people are really considering like things have shifted people they felt like they would be friends with their whole lives they realize they're like always going to have such different politics with them that maybe they can't just ignore that anymore and um and so i don't i think that that shift is important culturally i don't think it means we should just go like drop all of our friends who mm-hmm. disagree with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean to, pre- to like suggest at all that my positions have like are the right ones. I think to me, the biggest consistency between friends and like in my self evolution has just been this like willingness to ask really deep questions yeah. and to, and, and I kind of use the word interrogate, but like to really critically question the choices I make. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm open to that being critically questioned by others. Like, you know, I have friends who are vegan and who I know really believe that for me to live my feminist politics that I say I live, they think that I need to be vegan. Yeah. And I don't think they're wrong. It right. doesn't mean that I'm vegan. Right, <laughs> but, right, right. Um, but like, so, but it's just like the willingness to have those conversations and be open to them. Yeah. Um, and I, so I, I guess back to your question about like my self-evolution is really just, I feel like come in like unlearning all of these different ways of living life that I just always accepted and really pushing back against the ones I've started to recognize as patriarchal or colonial or imperial or white supremacist or Mm -hmm. um, homophobic and transphobic. Um, And that's, I mean, that's a lifelong process. That's yeah. It will be constant, right? Because there's like always another unraveling, always another unlearning, but um, like that idea of asking questions and being curious and being open to what you can learn and discover, I think is so, so important. And I totally identify with a lot of what you were saying. And it's, it's, um, it's kind of hard work sometimes. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the times yeah. I mean, it's uh fulfilling, or I think like, especially when you are in line with like, it like feels right, but there's, um, it can be, it can be kind of hard work. And sometimes you feel like maybe, um, I know I actually was just experiencing this myself. It's like, gosh, you know, maybe I, I don't want to come across as preachy with my ideas at all in any way, but you sometimes worry that some people might feel that way. or, And then you're like, okay, ground yourself in yourself. And this is, you know, speaking for myself here. It's like just, you know, you're on your own journey and maybe not, not everyone's on that journey. Um, and I think that requires uh, like, a, you know, a bit of self-love and some kindness towards yourself. So I'm curious, how do you, how do you take care of yourself in a way when you're working um, and striving to make these types of choices and live in a way that's really true to who you are? Like, I, I, I don't know. Would you agree with me? Does that require some self-love and some care for yourself? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it definitely requires those things. Um, I always point toward the work of my dear friend um, Taylor Morrison who does mm. is like a self-care 
enthusiast and guide for other people. Um, she's really wonderful. You can follow her on Instagram at Taylor Elise Morrison. Cool. Um, Elise with the Y E O Y S E. Um, but I, I really appreciate her work on this, um, and the ways that she thinks about self care. Um, and I wish I had, I have read her definition of self care many, many Mm. times, and I don't think I have it in front of me, but it's really beautiful. She defines self-care as listening to my body and responding in the most loving way possible. Mm. And I really love that definition of self-care. I think that for me, one of the things self-care does is like a lot of the ways that, and I hope this isn't necessarily true for everyone. It's just true for me. Um, But, you know, a lot of the work that I've talked about and kind of my, my coming to social justice as a person of privilege mm-hmm. is a very like intellectual endeavor. Like yeah. I'm trying to learn, unlearn, understand. Yeah. Um, and that means that like, I have to do all of this intellectual learning and then I have to integrate it into my body. Yeah. Um, which is like a psychological and physical process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think self care is what allows for that work to get done. Like That's... it allows me the space for my body to to take in and really process and live that information i love how you just explained that that is such that is i don't know i had a light bulb moment when you just said that that's so so good all right thanks you for sharing that (laughs) oh i'm so happy yeah yeah i love that yeah and i i think that i mean and i think you know a major difference between like that that being the case for me as a personal privilege Mm -hmm. and for um, what I hear from many uh, marginalized folks yeah. of all sorts of backgrounds is like they live oppression yep. in like an embodied psychological and physical way every single day. So yep. self care is um, for them. It's about just like trying to get that toxicity out of their body. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I guess in some ways is what I'm trying to do, but I think it's very different. It's different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm. It's like I'm doing a lot of unlearning. Um, I don't know. So I need to think more about that because I haven't really sat with that and tried Mm -hmm. to think through it. But I think what I'm doing is trying to take this like intellectual unlearning that I'm doing and get my body to unlearn it too. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that's happening through self-care. And of course that requires self-love because it's going to, it's a really long, hard process. And I, um, I mess it up all the time. (laughs) I, and it's, it's really hard and it's really nuanced. So, yeah. so I think self-care and self-love are definitely function that way. I mean, and also it's just like, I need breaks. I need, mm. I have to rest. Every, everyone does. Yeah. And you have to kind of be in tune with yourself to, to figure that out. Yeah. Um, but, but and I think that's all, all a part of it. So I think there's really this balance between like how you see self-care, how you use self-care you know, that phrase is so tied up in like a capitalist. Right. I know. It's world it be, right now. Yeah, I know. For me, for me, self-care is like an exiting. It's like a leaving the room. It's like a, like hermiting in my house and not buying anything and yeah. not paying attention to anything and not being on social media. Like, so it's this like real contraction mm. um, almost where like I try to get into myself to do that deep work kind of away from a paying a larger attention, paying attention to like some of the larger things going on in the world. Yeah. But um, I think it's very personal what different people need for self for self care. And I think that everyone has to do the sorts of accounting 
and accountability with themselves of like, am I, what am I using self-care for? Mm-hmm. Is that retreat? Like, is it just avoidance? Sometimes I, I definitely see that yeah, from yeah. people of privilege. Um, yeah. But it's also, you know, it's no one's place to judge. You just have to be, I think, honest with yourself and accountable to yourself in those moments. Yeah. No, you're right. It's so, it's, it's just an individual experience and, and being able to tune in and listen to your body, like your friend says, and figuring out what it really needs at, at that point. I think that's, that's really, really important. What's something for yourself that you're kind of learning and discovering right now? Oh, what a lovely question. Mm. Um, as somebody who has been in school for literally like 23 <laughs> yeah. years in a row, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't even think about it that way anymore. Um, yeah. So right now, something something that's fascinating me, so I um, – but I've just been learning. It's become this like kind of passion projecty research project I've been doing, mm. um, you know, outside of the like official research project <laughs> of my dissertation and the like podcast research project of 50 feminist states. Um, I have this like passion research project. <laughs> well, um, I have, yeah, I have gotten like fascinated and terrified by the role that like the internet and digital technologies and, um, big data play in our lives and I've just started doing this is going to make me seem out of left field but like I've just been reading a lot and paying attention to like the I don't know the role that all these technologies play in my life Mm -hmm. um, how much access I give them to myself Um, I just Mm -hmm. read one of the big things I did since I've been off Instagram was I read Jenny O'Dell's new book um, how to do nothing and it's a lot about how um, how to resist the attention economy and how to um, for her through bioregionalism so like through getting to know our like hyper local ecosystems that we live in Um, and and that's been something I've been learning a lot about and I'm um, you know starting to realize I don't really know enough about computers to totally understand it or about Mm -hmm. computer programming um and I don't think you have to I'm just like seeking out people explaining it to me and explaining the ways that like being digitally native is impacting me being Mm. in touch with the world yeah the the physical then physical and environmental world and I've become so fascinated by this and um it's been really interesting to learn about so I think I think that's where I'm kind of headed next which I don't eventually yeah I'll eventually figure out how that relates to all of the other things (laughs) it's all a piece of the puzzle you know (laughs) Um, yeah but that's yeah I don't know that's just been when you ask like what I've been learning I was Mm -hmm. trying to think like what has excited me like what did I do in my spare time what's what's been fun and um that's the thing that's been like kind of fun and that I just like Google or not, well, I Google around and then I read about all the problems with Google. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of been this, this little, little journey I've been on and kind of done uh, for myself lately. Love Love a it. new like inquiry I have. Yeah. So cool. All right. And then if people, cause I, this was, I had such a good time chatting with you. Uh, how can people, you know, once you're back on your Instagram, how can people follow you? And I'll share all this in the show notes, but what are some good places yeah. to follow you or to check out some of your work? Yeah. So you can always find me on Instagram at Lady Amelia. Uh, so L-A-D-Y-A-M-E-L-I-A-A. Um, 
I'm there. You can follow 50 Feminist States at 50 Feminist States. It's spelled out F-I-S-T-Y Feminist States on Instagram or at 50feministstates.com. And you can please uh, listen, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. that's always, always appreciated. Um, those are kind of the best ways to keep in touch with me. There's a newsletter for 50 Feminist States if people want kind oh, of cool. actual updates on, like, when episodes come out, what kind of traveling I'm doing. Yeah. Um, you can find all of that there, and then you can learn more about my work just at AmeliaFreebie.com, which cool. is my personal website. All right, wonderful. I'm going to add all those into the show notes. And I just so appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today and um, – so many great insights and I think that you offer today that I just really, really enjoyed your your thoughtful responses and just appreciate you taking the time to be here. So thank you so much, Amelia. Well, thank you, Maureen. Those are really wonderful questions. I appreciate the opportunity to think about them and, and share some some answers, at least tentative answers for now. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Amelia as much as I did. It came at just the right time for me personally, as it was another reminder in my life to take action in my own way to make sure I'm doing what I can to create change so that all of us can be treated with fairness, equality, and respect. Even though I can become discouraged at times, as a white woman, it's important that I remember that I have the luxury to put my blinders on and act like things are good enough because I don't have to deal with the real-life challenges that marginalized people face daily but it deeply affects all of us, whether we realize it or not. And there is some major healing needed. I could go on and on about some of my reflections, but I'll plan to share more in my new blog titled Reflections. You can check it out on my website, MaureenRyan.co. I would, I would love to hear from you. What did you find yourself thinking about and reflecting on after listening to this episode? Please share on my website, MaureenRyan.co, or my Instagram page, Maureen underscore Ryan underscore. And if you haven't already, join the Becoming Aligned private Facebook community where we'll keep the conversation going. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Becoming Aligned. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Becoming Aligned and rate and review this podcast. I'm Maureen Ryan, and I hope you'll join us next time. Take care.